from the book of Mark. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and says to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions. In the age to come, eternal life and many who are first will be last and the last first. Thank you, Dave. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you in gratitude and in wonder at your, your amazing love for us, God, we just, we're just so grateful that we can be worshiping you here together as, as your people. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts and, and draw us near to you, and may we come with open hearts and minds to listen to your word and what you have to say to us through your scripture. You tell us in the scriptures that, that it's a living and an active word. It's, it's been breathed out by you, God, and we come to hear from you. And I pray, Father, that you would um, enable us to receive what you have to say, even if it challenges, especially if it challenges us, it convicts us, it stirs us, it, it moves us. God, I want to um, just thank you more than anything for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, and the hope that we have through the gospel, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We are glad you're worshiping with us today, and I want to invite you to, to join me in that passage there that Dave just read from us, or for us, and it's in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And this is the story of what we, what we typically, typically call the rich young ruler. 
We don't necessarily glean that from this story, but uh, or Mark's account, but we discover in Matthew that this was a young man, and Luke tells us that he was a ruler, and the context of the story tells us he was very wealthy. So that's the rich young ruler, that's sort of where we get that. And as we hear a story like this, um, this, as with so many of these other passages we've been looking at over the last month, it can be easy for us to say, well, that's, that's not me. He's not talking to, to me. I'm not, I'm not rich, for goodness sakes. You know, I, I drove, drove in in a used car. Uh, I've only got a couple of TVs at home. I, my, you should see my bank account. I, I'm, I'm not that wealthy. This is, e- this is one of those passages that's easy to apply to someone else that we know who's wealthier than we are. But here's the reality, and we could read a lot of stats, but I'm, I'm just going to read a couple of them. Uh, as an individual, uh, you're in the top 1% of worldwide earners if you make more than $60,000 per year. You're in the top 1% if you make more than sixty grand a year, as far as the world's concerned. The, the medium worldwide income uh, is $2,800 per year. It's the median worldwide income. Do you imagine trying to live on $2,800 a year? That, that means half of the households in America make more than 25 times the median world income. By and large, what Jesus has to say here is incredibly applicable to the North American church. We, as a culture and as a society and as a nation, we've been blessed materially. Again, I, I know the natural place to go is, yeah, but... But, I, but you should see what my neighbor has. Yeah, but you don't know that I was struggling to make this payment last month or whatever. But let's, let's just sit with Jesus here. Let's not, uh, let's not make any excuses or, or try, to, try to shift this passage onto somebody else. Let's just sit with the story and listen to what Jesus tells us about this young man that came to him and, and hear what he has to say and if there's not something he has for us. There's a quote from Mark Twain that really could capture each of these passages that we've looked at so far. He once said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the part that I, parts that I do understand. And I think as we read this story, we see Jesus is very plainly teaching something about money and possessions that we all need to take heart. And so as we hear those verses that that Dave just read to us. We, we see at, the, at verse 17 that this, this man runs up to him. So we see his earnestness right away. He kneels down, so we see some humility in his heart, and he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This really is the question. I mean, this is the question of all questions. How do I know that I have eternal life? What do I have to do? How do I, how do I make this certain? If there's any question that's not a dumb question, this is at the top of the list. This should be of utmost importance for all of us to seek an answer to. This should be a burning question on all of our hearts that, that, that truly ate at this man. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's really interesting that despite all of his wealth, there must have been something in this man's life that, realized, that he realized, I, I, I'm missing something. There's something that urged him, that brought him to Jesus. And so Jesus' initial response begins to get to the core of the issue. Look at how Jesus responded. 
In verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You see, notice he doesn't address the question right away. He addresses the heart behind the question. And he recognizes that this man did not see Jesus for who he truly was. He says, good teacher. He recognizes that Jesus has a lot of wisdom, that he's very important, maybe, maybe even a prophet. But he's not here ready to recognize that Jesus is, should be the Lord of his life, that Jesus is God come to this earth and, and dwell among them. He's not ready to truly submit his heart before him. And so Jesus is like, only God's good. He's getting to the, to the heart of the issue that the, the rest of the conversation will eventually work its way to. And so he goes, Jesus' response, he goes on, You know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So Jesus goes right to the commandments because he's, he's on his way to a heart issue. He's on his way to pointing out something in this man's heart that is keeping him from God. And he, uh, he lists six of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't even go through all of them. You'll notice that uh, do not defraud is in there. That's actually not one of the Ten Commandments. It could be a, a shortened version of do not steal or uh, don't, uh, don't um, uh, covet your, what is your neighbor's, the Tenth Commandment. And so he, he's drawing this man in through the conversation He says, you need to keep these commandments. And this man replied, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. This is a phenomenal response. And I think, we we can't read into exactly where he's coming from. One thought says this man is coming from a place of unbelievable pride. To think that he's kept all of the commandments. That he's got his whole life all together and he's not done anything wrong. But, but the other thought is that he's coming from a place of sort of this naiveness. That yeah, he's like, I, I'm, I'm doing good, Jesus, I'm doing good. And I tend to think that it's the latter because Jesus is always, always harsh with self-righteousness. The people who are like, come with arrogance and pride, like I've got it all together. Jesus always blasted, in love, blasted those Pharisees and, and those, those who, are, who are just driven by this proud, self-righteous heart. But notice how Jesus responds. This is beautiful. Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus loved him. What a, what a beautiful response. What a beautiful response. Jesus did not come... Out of the gate with condemnation, Jesus didn't come out and make him uh, with this big guilt trip or mock him and say, you're way off. Jesus loved him. In fact, nowhere else in the Gospel of Mark do we find a phrase like this. Jesus loved him. This entire interaction, first with the young man and then with the disciples, reveals Jesus' tender hearts towards them. That word looking at him is, is the idea of Uh, That Greek word gives you the idea of truly seeing. Jesus was gazing intently at him. Jesus didn't give him a a passing glance, brush him aside with something quick and brief. He, he, He set his eyes upon this man. He wanted this man to know that he truly saw him. He knew what he was wrestling with, and his heart was moved with compassion. This man 
had a very naive perception of his righteousness. He truly thought he had perfectly obeyed these commandments. And so Jesus was essentially saying here, okay, I'll play along. We'll go, we'll go along with this. And so he says, teacher, I've kept all of these things since my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. If you're jotting down notes, the first thing that we see here this morning is you can be as sincere as you want, but sincerity does not give us a free pass. Like we can be sincere, but still sincerely wrong. This man had a great many possessions. Was Jesus telling him that he had to sell them in order to earn his salvation? I do not believe so. Just like we saw last week, Jesus was not saying we have to forgive in order to earn the Father's forgiveness. No, no, no. We forgive to, to demonstrate that we have received the Father's forgiveness, that we have a changed heart. And he was calling this man to give away his possessions, not to earn his salvation, but to, to demonstrate with his heart that his allegiance was to God and God alone. Jesus saw through the core issue. He saw where this man's true first love laid. And it was with his stuff, with his money, with, with his wealth. He was not ready to submit himself before Jesus as the, the Lord and master of his life. His wealth was still the master of his life. And he wanted to tack on Jesus as fire insurance, as a safety catch, to make sure that he was going to truly be okay. Jesus' questions and answers did not reveal how we get saved. That is, by selling our stuff. It revealed this man's heart and where his true allegiance was. Tim Keller has said, when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have meant to lose himself, to lose what little sense he had of having covered the stain. It's one thing to have God as a boss, an example, a mentor, but if you want God to be your Savior, you have to replace what you're already looking to as a Savior. And everybody's got something. What's that for you? What is it that God, that Jesus himself, if he appeared in our midst today, or maybe as you're walking out to your car later on today, what might he look to you and ask you to give up? that your first response would be, no way. No way. Are you kidding me? I, I can't go that far. What we see also from this story is that wealth must not define a believer's life. Wealth must not define a believer's life. Look at verse 23. The man has walked away with great sorrow in his heart. And now Jesus is going to process the story or the situation with his disciples. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, notice it's Jesus that initiates the conversation. They're dumbfounded by what they just experienced and heard. 
And he says, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. This is a powerful statement. You see, wealth in Jesus' day was seen as an indication of God's blessing. If you had money, that meant God was happy with you. And not much has changed, at least not in our culture. Even, even in Christian cultures, you can go Google Christian books on wealth. Go to a Christian bookstore and peruse the, the, the aisles. And you'll see so much is written and even preached in churches that if, if I have a lot of stuff that demonstrates God's favor is upon me, this story teaches the exact opposite that you can have a ton of stuff and not have Jesus. Notice, and we're going to touch on this one or two more times as we walk through it. Notice Jesus is not saying that having money is sin. But what he is saying is that when it grips our heart, when it trumps our allegiance to Jesus, it's devastating to our spiritual life. Jesus reminds us that those who are ruled by stuff are not ruled by God. Listen, my brothers and sisters, Jesus' words ought to jar us. If he's not speaking directly to wealthy North Americans, I don't know who he's speaking to. These disciples, as well as this man and, and the culture around them, believed truly that wealth was an indication of God's affection, God's favor towards them. And Jesus said, no. On the contrary, it's hard for wealthy people to enter into the kingdom of God. And that's what we see here in these next few verses. It's hard for the rich to be saved. It's hard for the rich to be saved. Notice what he says going on. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, this was contrary to everything that they were taught and understood in their culture. And again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who could be saved? Who in the world can be saved? If a rich person whom we thought was favored by God, if they can't be saved, then who can be saved? How in the world can this happen? But notice, even in his rebuke here, Jesus is tender with them. Jesus is oh so tender with them. One writer says, even though, even those who know in their heads that money does not buy happiness or heaven, still wish in their hearts that they had more. Right? I mean, if we're honest, isn't that, that true of us? Like, there's, no, there's probably all of us who know better to, than to say money buys happiness. But probably all of us wish we had a little more of it. But consequently, Jesus repeats himself to drive home the point. For the first and only time in the gospel, he addresses the disciples as children. My children. As if to remind them that they must become like children if they're going to enter the kingdom of God. Did you notice, and we've, we've jumped into this story without the context. Did you notice what takes place right before this story? Verse 15 Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of heaven like a little child will never enter it. Jesus was saying, we need to set aside all of our stuff. You see, children, and we could spend so much time talking about the ways in which kids demonstrate the heart of 
a person from the kingdom of God. There's that innocence. There's that simple childlike trust. There's that, that abandon when, with which they come to their parents. They don't care what they look like. They don't care if they've got everything together in their life. They, they, just, they can come to mom or dad. And they can be real and honest and they say the, whatever comes to their mind. And I mean, we can go on and on about the similarities between a child and the way that we're supposed to be with our Heavenly Father. And Jesus draws the connection here with uh, children and, and the attitude towards wealth. Your, your kid, your little kids, especially when they're really little, they don't care about how much stuff costs. They, 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 money is not important to them. They're not worried about how you pay your bills. They don't care if you pay your bills. I mean, they, they don't, they don't, they're not thinking about that. They don't understand what, what hit your mortgage payment takes out the first of the month out of your bank account. That is, it's, not, it's not on their mind at all. If they see something that they need, they just ask you for it. Daddy, can I have this? Even if it's something they want and they don't really need. They're just like, can I have this? There's no thought to that. I mean, what if we just approached God like that? We just had that childlike spirit. God, I feel like this could be a real important need right now. Can I have this? You know what's best for me, but would you provide this if it's in my best interest? There are all kinds of parallels. But Jesus said it's hard for the rich to be saved. He's not necessarily holding up poverty as an ideal, that everybody should be poor. He's not teaching Marxism here or anything like that. He's, he's simply teaching that, that wealth is very often, not just sometimes, but very often a barrier to a relationship with God. The, just because you're poor doesn't mean that you're immune to settling for other things other than God and treasuring him above all else. But there's something especially about the wealthy. And this is why Jesus talked about money more than anything else, because he understood what a trap it can be for our heart. And so he uses this illustration and says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Some commentators and, and folks have tried to uh, associate this with a certain gate in the cities of Jerusalem and all that. But the reality is Jesus is simply using a metaphor here. You, you could pick any, any, any metaphor you want to indicate that something is, like, super impossible. He says it's easier for a camel to just walk through an eye of a needle. And, and his listeners would have understood, wow, there, there's something, like, wow, okay, it's that hard for a rich person to be saved. Th that blows our mind because we thought the exact opposite. And Jesus is like, well, you're wrong. Wealth will not get you to heaven. Here, here's, I just wrote down three reasons briefly why wealth can be such a stumbling block. Wealth tends to lead to self-reliance. It can blind our need for the gospel. Listen, if I have, if I have unlimited resources or even just a, a lot of resources, when, when a child gets sick and I know that I can just pay that bill, Either my insurance is going to cover all or most, or I can just write a check right now, and it's not. How, how much do I need to pray? How much do I need to ask God to provide for me? If I have, if I have access to the very best doctors of, in the world, 
and I can see them at a moment's notice. How much do I need to rely on God for healing? If, if, I, if I know that my money can, can mend relationships, at least superficially, why do I need to pray for reconciliation when I can buy those things? The, the, the wealthy tend to be self-reliant. There's that temptation to go down that trail. That I, can, I can take care of it. My needs are met. In, in fact, Paul reminded Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Notice he didn't tell Timothy to tell the rich they need to get rid of all their stuff, that they can't go to heaven if they have some stuff. Notice he doesn't do that, but he says, remind them, don't set your hope on your wealth. Don't rely on your resources. Rely on God. Wealth tends to lead us to self-reliance. But secondly, wealth can be a sign that we're laying up treasures on earth. Again, it's not always the truth, but it often is. Just like the, the parable that Jesus told elsewhere, we're building bigger barns. We're, we're, we're buying buying up more property so we can have room to store our stuff. We build bigger houses so that we can fit our stuff into. We're, we're trying to find different places that we can stuff all of our money so that it doesn't get taxed by the IRS. And, and we're, we can be occupied and, and consumed with this. Wealth can be a sign that we're laying up treasures on earth. And of course, you know the passage from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up your, for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If our treasure is our treasure, then Christ is not. If our treasure, if our possessions is what's truly important to us, then we're treasuring something above Jesus. But I do remind you that it's not impossible. And that's what Jesus reminded his disciples. They said, who could be saved if this is the way it is? And Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Listen, anytime someone comes to Christ, it's a miracle. Anytime God changes a heart, a miraculous new birth has taken place that can't be explained by any work of man or a powerful sermon or a, 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 a convincing neighbor who's nagged you into the, You don't get nagged into the kingdom. Anytime that someone comes to Christ, it's, it's a miracle of the new birth, like Jesus said in John 3. But what... What Jesus is driving home here, the, the, the central issue behind all of this has to do with one's ultimate loyalty. Jesus' Jesus's point, as we said, is not to convince his followers to sell all their stuff, but to really, truly reflect on where their heart is and, what, and, and in whom or in what their hope has been rested Think about Zacchaeus. Jesus didn't insist Zacchaeus sell all of his goods and give it to the poor before he would eat with him. Zacchaeus voluntarily offers to give up half of his possessions and to restore what he's taken by fraud. 
four times as much. The willingness to make things right with those to whom he is owed money or he is defrauded evokes Jesus' response in Luke 19. Today, salvation has come to this house. Notice the difference between Zacchaeus and the rich young man. The rich young man had his stuff, and that was of utmost priority to him. And when Jesus saw it and pointed it out and said, you need to go sell it, the man was not willing to go that far. But notice Zacchaeus revealed he had a changed heart by being willing to give up stuff, being willing to pay back. He was ready to release his possessions because he knew that Jesus Christ was his treasure. He knew that his stuff, his wealth would fade away one day. And that is when he heard the response, today salvation has come to this house. One writer says, few are willing to risk divesting themselves of whatever provides them security in this life to enter a new quality of life under God's rule. So here's the end of the matter. Here's what Jesus finishes on. My brothers and sisters, you will not regret leaving the world behind. There is nothing that you and I can leave behind where we, at the end of our days, as we get ready to see Jesus, will be able to say, you know, it really wasn't worth it giving that up for Jesus. I really wish that I would have held on to that thing, that money, that hobby, that whatever. Because I think I would have, I'd be way more content right now than I am with Jesus. Jesus said in verse 29, listen, none of you have left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now in this time, in eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. At the end of the day, Jesus calls all of us to give up anything that stands in the way of enjoying him fully. This is what Jesus did in coming to this earth. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The missionary Jim Elliott, who gave his life as a martyr for the gospel down in South America many years ago, once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So here's the litmus test for us this morning. Here's a question for each of us to ask. Am I a generous person? question might be a little bit vague. I mean, if it really con- comes down to it, probably any of us could convince ourselves that we're generous. Maybe it's a question better asked of someone who knows us well and someone who will tell us the truth. Am I generous? Am I, am I ready to let go of my stuff, whatever may? Like we, said that we saw that in the first week of this series. Give to him who asks of you. How, how, how much do I hold on to my stuff? How, how much is my day uh, or my week uh, impacted by how the stock market's doing? Uh, how, how much of my time and my thought process is, is preoccupied with, with my stuff, with cleaning my stuff, with organizing my stuff, with going out and getting new stuff, with selling some stuff so I can have some money to buy new stuff? Am I a generous person? If someone 
walked up to us today in the church parking lot and said they were in desperate need of a new set of tires and couldn't pay for them is my first thought, how can I help meet this need? Or is it immediately a list of reasons why I can't? That might give us a clue as to where our heart is, where our treasure is. You see, Jesus is not only talking about money here. Like we said at the outset, so many of us could say, listen, I'm looking around the room and I know three quarters of this room, maybe even more, have a bigger bank account than me. I'm okay. So let's expand it. Is there anything that Jesus could come to you and say, I want you to give up this? Fill in the blank. And you would walk away dismayed. Is there anything that Jesus could say, I need, you to, I need you to give up this? And we would say, no. I'm willing to go to church every Sunday. I'm willing to even give a little bit of tithe. I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to do all kinds of things, but don't ask me to do that. Don't ask me to give up that right there. This passage becomes very convicting when we see ourselves, first of all, among the world's wealthiest, just statistically, but even more so when we realize that Jesus is saying, I don't want you to settle for something other than the greatest thing. You see, it's easy to read this passage and say, man, Jesus is being a jerk. Let the the dude have his money. Jesus recognizes, though, that the greatest treasure that exists in the universe is God himself. And there's nothing that we have that's more valuable than that treasure. Nothing. And he longs for us to have what is greatest and best. That's the heart of God. We have a generous heart of God. He's calling us to be generous, and he's doing so because that's his own heart. And he says, I want you to have the greatest, most beautiful treasure in all the world. And your 401k, you think it's great. The the new car you have, the new fishing boat, whatever it is, you think that's, that's the pinnacle, and I'm telling you that it's not. I'm telling you that if you come to me, you will find joy and treasure that, that can't even can't be calculated and counted. Jesus is not telling us, go sell your stuff because he wants to be a jerk. He's telling us, he's telling us, don't let anything stand between you and God, you and the greatest treasure of all. Tim Keller wrote, the only way I know to counteract the power of money in your life, the power of stuff, is to see the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything to come after you, to rescue you, to love you. The one who, though he was rich, became poor. The one who was in the image of God, Philippians 2, and came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He took upon himself poverty 
so that we might become rich? The answer is always Jesus. When we turn to Him, we recognize Him and see Him for the beauty that He has. And it's only as we gaze upon Him that our hearts begin to let go of our stuff. It's only when we see that He's taken our sin upon His shoulders and bore it on the cross and rose from the dead that we can understand He is the greatest treasure of all. He's the one that sets us free. He's the one upon all of our hope and and trust rests in Him and in Him alone. I hope this is true of you today. We have the privilege this morning of celebrating the Lord's table together. It's, it's an important, yeah, as always, it's, it, this is so crucial to our life as believers. I hope you don't see this as a ritual or simply as a tradition. We break bread together and drink of the cup that allows us to not only remember his death, but reorient our hearts to, to his goodness and kindness to remember that He is our treasure. He is to be delighted in above all. And it's in Jesus during communion that we find spiritual nourishment for our souls as God's people come together. I, I want us to just do this for a moment. And, and, and we, we, we normally do something like this where we just take a, take a moment to quiet our hearts and to to just bow for some silent prayer right where you are. And we don't do that because we're, Scripture doesn't, doesn't tell us we have to do that before communion. We don't just do it because it's tradition. This, this is a great time for us to quiet our hearts before God and to gaze upon the cross and say, thank you, Jesus. But this is also a great time to truly ask God to search our hearts and say, is there anything obscuring my view of the cross? Has anything grown up in my heart that I'm beginning to treasure more than Jesus? Is there anything in my heart that's there that, like we said, that God couldn't put his finger on and said, I want you to get rid of that? And we say, no. It's a great time for us to be quiet before him and renew our love for him and express that he is our greatest treasure and joy. I just want you to know that after we, after we have this time of silent prayer, I'll, I'll just say a brief prayer, and, and our worship team will be up here and, uh, and, and, and lead us in a song. And you just come on up out of your seats right where you are. And we've got two tables here, and um, the, the, uh, the, the offering plate that you'll find there as well is just, it's for our benevolence offering to help those who in our, um, our church family are in need of some kind, and, and so that's over and above uh, your normal giving to just say, hey, I, w- I want to come alongside and meet some of these needs. Um, that, that plate is there to do that. Let's take a moment and bow our heads and our hearts before Jesus.
Heavenly Father, we, we hear the words of Jesus, and for a lot of us here today, these, these are hard words to hear, because we live in a culture that, that tells us that, that he who dies with the most toys wins, that stuff's important. God, I pray that you would teach us to view our thing, our possessions, our money through your eyes, to see them as tools to bless others, as gifts from you, but to not hold on to any of our things too tightly. God, if, if I'm treasuring something above Jesus this morning, I pray that you would bring conviction. Lord God, I pray that we would hear the words of Jesus in the right spirit. That he's not being a jerk telling us to just get rid of our stuff just for the sake of it. But he understands that anything that gets between us and him is deadly. You tell us elsewhere in your word that we can't serve both God and money. We have a choice. And I pray, God, that, that if you're convicting us, that our money, our possessions, our stuff, or anything, our status, our reputation, even our family, if it, it becomes, it's become so important that it's standing in front of you, God, God may, we, may we earnestly seek by your power and grace to set that in its proper place and exalt you above all else in all of our decisions, in all of our ways, in all of our spending, that we would love Jesus more than anything. I thank you, Father, that you've given the gift of your Son and that we get to celebrate what we call the Lord's table, communion, that we can come fellowship with you in this unique and mysterious way. We, we, get, to, we get to enter into the union with Christ that has been secured through Jesus' death on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with worship and wonder and joy in a, in a nearness to your presence that can't be explained. Thank you, God, that you have secured our salvation through the gift of your Son and through his resurrection from the dead. Thank you for the hope that we can have through Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please come.
your hearts in Christ and to humble your hearts before Christ. Amen. We love you, church.